Mindfulness Mode 142. It was really a way to manipulate people into doing what I wanted them to do. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Thanks for tuning in, Mindful Tribe. On our last episode, we talked about mindfulness and back to school. And I told a story about an incident in school when my anger got the best of me and violence happened. Well, I've learned a lot since then about mindfulness. And oh, just a reminder, that episode number 141, that's the last in the series, Weekends with Bruce Langford. Oh, by the way, would you let me know what you liked about my weekend shows? And one thing that you really didn't like, that would be really helpful to get some feedback. Send an email to bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. Thanks a lot. Today we talk with Deborah Williams about the financial side of mindfulness. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. She drops so many gold nuggets about finance and how mindfulness can really help us stay on track. So enjoy. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm totally thrilled to have Deborah Williams on the line today. Hey, Debbie, are you in mindfulness mode? You can be sure I am. Oh, that's great. Deborah Williams is a money coach, accountant, and podcaster committed to helping others where money meets mindset. She has a way of leading her clients to a place of both prosperity and joy. Deborah grew up in a home with addiction and later married a man who was an alcoholic. In her 30s, she realized how dysfunctional her life really was and she decided to make some changes. Deborah has terrific insight into many aspects of life, and mindfulness is one of them. So what does mindfulness mean to you, Debbie? Well, I think in my journey as uh, someone who had to go from this place where I had financially very much taken myself down or allowed myself to be taken down, I had to get to this place where I had a a deeper understanding of why I would have done that, which led me to realize that I needed to learn how to feel good enough in my own skin to be self-loving, which has then converted itself, so to speak, into this overall sense of knowing my place in the world. And I can always kind of go about my day being mindful that most of what's going on around me has nothing to do with me. And most of my job is simply to do myself the best I can. And I think that's causes me to be very much aware at all times of what's happening. And I love it. I love feeling like that. Well, that's great because Deb, you just seem vibrant. You seem happy. You seem fulfilled. But let's go back to what you said. You said you allowed yourself to be taken down. So can you expand on that? I mean, that's, that's heavy. Well, you know, it, what happened was it took many years for this to sort of evolve. So, you know, when I'm thinking about it and talking to people, I try to remind them that we have this arc of our life that we can change at any time, you know, be it older or be it younger. This was all happening and I didn't really understand the dynamics. So I grew up in a family with alcoholism and with actually, you know, abuse. So we can talk a little about that when we go to talk about bullying a little. And so therefore I had a certain way of surviving and I had all the tools and the skills to, to take care of my financial life. That was never the problem. 
But what I didn't have was the right mindset about it because of my past. So I kept constantly trying to fit the square peg in the round hole, which was to say, if I didn't feel well, I would do what a lot of people do. I would spend. I would do something that didn't line up with really what was going on and what I was upset about. And so I basically, because of a kind of perfect storm, I got divorced. My kids left home and we had the recession all pretty close together. It kind of took us down to I basically hit a rock bottom and I was scrambling and trying to hold my life together. And it was hard. And what happened was I basically got involved in getting the addiction part of the work dealt with a little bit, which means I had, I finally had a community and that community is 12 step community. In my case, adult children of alcoholics. And that was the beginning that. And then from there, I just had more, uh, I, I kept adding health and wellness pieces to everything. And I kept my, the rest of my life the same until I could figure out what I wanted to do. And that has just evolved in the last two years. So, well, you know, Mindful Tribe, as you listen to this, and you know, we're talking about finances and mindfulness, but it's just amazing how every other aspect of our lives sort of is dependent on how things go with the finances. And you said about, you know, the right mindset. You just didn't have the right mindset in order to deal with your finances. So you've kind of talked a bit about that already, but that's what we really want to dig into, Deb. We want to dig deep into that area about that mindset. How do we get it? How do we transition so that we do have the right mindset so that we can comfortably earn the amount of money we deserve? Um, it's, it's a perfect thing to dive into. And it, in fact, it's really what floats my boat at this point. And what I've come to realize is really kind of my mission and my, you know, my, what I'm supposed to be doing with the rest of my life to help other people see that you can, in fact, take a different path. So what happens is, is we are born and we, uh, basically as, the cute little sponges and adorable little children we are, we absorb everything that's going on around us. And I don't know about you, but I know plenty of families, mine especially included, where the fighting between my parents that existed was usually around money. Mm-hmm. And there was also, uh, there were other a lot of other dynamics as, as my dad's addiction, you know, unfolded. But it really was about money, money represented power and control over people. And so, you get a very skewed version of the abundance that money is supposed to provide. It's, you know, and, and on top of it, we live in a society that is so driven to tell people, solve your problems by spending money on stuff. And I'm not saying we shouldn't buy stuff. I'm saying we should understand when and what, you know, when is a good time to buy stuff? When is it the right time? So it's a, it's basically more of a matter of, starting at the right point, you know, starting first with what's at foundational level, the most important thing to know. So an example, um, you go to a stockbroker and you say, uh, what should I invest in? And people ask me that question. And I really don't like talking about it. First of all, I'm not a broker, so I can't give that kind of advice anyway. But I mean, I get the idea of how to invest and what Mm -hmm. to do. Sure. But what you then find out when you talk to some people is 
they're not even saving any money anyway. But somehow the message has gotten through to them that they should be doing this thing, investing in money, you know, investing their money. Right. But if you haven't even made the commitment with yourself to actually save the money to do that, you're never going to do it. It's it's doing it, you know, backwards. Backwards. You're starting with the wrong thing. Yes. And so what you really need to do is get into the details of why you are the way you are and what you learn about yourself. And this is the kind of work I do. It's surrounding um, the, uh, the idea of archetypes. So what you find out is, is that we all have different money personalities in us and we have some that are stronger than others. And that's dictated by how we got raised and how we self-actualize things. So we have all of that going on. And then we also have the fact that we're just human beings and everybody has times they're afraid and stuff. So these archetypes basically represent good and bad behaviors. And we have a level of that in each of us. So what I help people see is, is that they have the good stuff in them, but they may not be using it. And then they have the bad stuff too. And once you know you have the good stuff, you're much more willing to hear the bad stuff and see that it's hurting you. And then you can start taking specific steps in the way you run your life. So, for example, in my little stock investment thing, maybe your first step would be to just put $50 a month in a mutual fund. And that would be the beginning of whatever it is you're going to do. Right. And then you're going to end up with a little bit of money that you'll be able to do something with that, that makes sense instead of just really spending. What you're really doing is spending on stuff and it's not the stuff you should be spending on, right? Right. Exactly. And, and actually, I'm not a scientist and I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I've had a lot of um, in, interaction with human beings over many years in, in the business and watched a lot of people around their money and watched how they behave and also now have such a great understanding of what I did. So what happens is, is that people really just need to see that there is a path forward, that's, that there's a guide and a way they can set it up for themselves and they don't have to just spend and not have a sense of why they've done it. A lot, I don't know, I don't know about you, but many times I've looked back and said, why did I buy that? And there's, oh, I started to say there's actually science behind that because the brain, 90%, something in that range, but how you decide to spend the money is unconscious. It's only 10% that you're actually thinking of consciously. So with that in mind, you have to have a much better understanding of the unconscious behaviors that you have before you can ever get a hold of it. I'm sure you do. And really do a great job. Right. Wow. Only only 10% is conscious. Yeah. And so yeah. is that what forms our money personalities? Can you tell someone's money personality just shortly after you meet them? If we're talking specifically about money and I'm asking them specific money questions, yes, probably. Uh, I can tell you this. We all, um, these are some of them. They're uh, the tyrant, the victim, the martyr, the fool, the magician, which is a good quality. So is, uh, oh, and then the warrior, which is your, your side, you know, yourself that, you know, takes charge and does things. And each one of those archetypes can also have a positive and negative quality within it. So there's nuance, you know. Mm. But the idea is, is that if you are looking at, at just the victim is one of the best examples. So many people are victims, myself included. 
and we we allow that part of our personality to take over and we think we have no control. We think we can't make a change and we're busy looking at what somebody else is doing and we're busy listening, you know, comparing ourselves to them. You know, that whole thing of, you know, somebody next door gets a new car and everybody's looking out the window at the new car and going, how come we don't have a new car? And that kind of thing. It's it's this, you know, whole culture of, of spending that we have. And the brain part of it is, it's a dopamine hit, you know, it's a serotonin and dopamine thing. And it's wiring in your brain as to it gives you this high for a temporary amount of time when you go buy that new car, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything positive about playing the victim role? Because you said each one of those things has a positive and negative. So what's the positive? Well, playing the victim role is probably the toughest of all of them to find the good in it. But I think, I think more than anything to, to look at the victim as it's more of what we see in the victim from the outside because okay. a victim was probably victimized to begin with. Right. So we don't want to ever lose sight of that. You know, those people, which is most of us, and in one way or another, at some time we have been victimized, some a lot more than others. Sure. So we really need to be empathetic to that. And that's not what I'm saying at all. I have lots of empathy for victims because I was one for a mm -hmm. long time. But I kind of believe like when you realize you're a victim, you have to then take a little bit of charge. You know, you have to start taking some responsibility for changing that, that trajectory. And that's when the victim can become, basically, they get in their own way. Well, I imagine the victim and the martyr are closely related. Is that true? It's true, except for one way that I thought was quite interesting when I discovered that I'm a martyr, because I'm a person who I've, and this, there's a full part of this too, I've loaned a lot of money to people in, over the years that didn't deserve to have the money loaned to them, or I didn't set it up properly so that I could be sure there was a way to get it back, things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's a martyr and a fool. And the martyr part, believe it or not, is a manipulative quality. So... I had no idea that my martyrdom that was something I had sort of done from the start as one of my strategies and, or one of my coping mechanisms, um, you know, to, for how my life was. Sure. It was really a way to manipulate people into doing what I wanted them to do. Mm. And that was really eye opening. That really hit me between the eyes. I mean, I was like, oh, gosh, I got to take responsibility for all that stuff that happened. But you know what? You do that, and guess what? You know this. Your life gets e it gets easier as soon as you accept fully, truly accept responsibility for your choices and your part in an argument or whatever. You can let it go. Wow, that's great. That's great to know. Let's talk about the magician. I can imagine what the positive is. I'm not sure about the negative, but let's talk about that. Well, the magician, the negative there would probably be more of a be careful you don't take risks that you aren't prepared to deal with after the fact. Okay. Because a magician is a person, along with a warrior, is they know how to make things happen. Mm -hmm. And a magician does it more from a place of generosity and abundance as a mindset. But that doesn't mean you couldn't get yourself into trouble, especially if you had a lot of uh, fool like in your background, like you had been a former, I'm a former fool. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. That kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, it's the play on each other that makes it so, so interesting to me and so challenging to actually really pinpoint it. But in doing the work, 
what you do is you help the person see it for themselves by looking at the patterns of their behaviors. And that way they have buy-in. They own it. They say, oh, now I get it. Now I know why I, every time I get upset with so-and-so, I run to a store and buy myself a new dress because this person makes them feel bad about themselves and they feel like they need to figure out how to look good when in fact they're already good enough. Mm. They just don't see it that way yet until they can get a hold of it. So it's very interesting. It is. So how do I look at the pattern of my behaviors? How do I sort of pull back the curtains and look at that? Well, there's one easy way to do it that you could just do for yourself Mm -hmm. um, as a first step, which is sit down and I actually use a, um, I use like a form, which is very simple grid, but it expands. So if you're typing, because typing can go faster, Mm -hmm. but you can journal this and um, basically go back every year. I'm five years old now. What do I remember from when I was five? You have to take the time, set it aside, quietly do this. It takes a while. If you're as old as I am, and I know, Bruce, you and I are in that range of the same age, it takes a little longer than, say, my daughter, who's in her, uh, she's 30 now. So, right. so it takes a while. You have to be really committed to doing it, but then you can sit down and go back over it with a highlighter, and you can notice the patterns of your mm. behavior. You can notice the emotions that you've got written in there. You can notice the energy behind the, the things that were going on. So do you do it every five years? Like, would you take five-year leaps in that? Actually, do it year by year as much as you can remember. Because the more you try to remember, the better overall picture you'll have of yourself. Okay, that's going to be a lot of writing, Deb. That is a lot of writing. (laughs) And the thing is, what you can do, see, I do it as a money coach with people. So that is their first homework assignment. You know, it's the main assignment, though. That's the good news. You do it at the front end. And then you, you spend four sessions on, on calls in Skype and that sort mm-hmm. of thing, and you go over it. Okay. But, um, but what you can do is you can certainly make a commitment to yourself to say, I'm going to cover from age you know, 5 to 10 one weekend, and then the next weekend I'll cover 10, you know, 11 to 16 and keep building on it. It's, it's really more for your own information to see mm-hmm. and remember the stories, the good and the bad, by the way. Mm-hmm. So you're writing the stories, you're writing about your thoughts and feelings, but also the specifics, where you spent your money, how money played a role in your life, all of those things? Correct. Well, whatever comes to you about money, whatever you think of when you think of money, it might be your career things. It might be specific things you bought, like when you finally were able to buy a new car and how much that made you feel so proud of yourself, that kind of thing. And uh, you then bring in, so it's really both you, what happened to you, Mm -hmm. and what happened to you when you were observing other members of your family. And mainly it's usually your parents, but there could be other people in your life who are close to you, like a sibling or a a grandparent who had a major influence as well. So you need to bring them into the picture as well. I see. So then when I'm finished this whole procedure of doing all this journaling, can I just go back over it and do the highlighting and pick it apart myself? Or do I need you to sit down with you and go through it? Probably you're going to need me to sit down with you. However, there's another piece you can do, which I'm actually just putting it up on my website. It's called a money mindset or money archetype quiz. And it allows you to, to, go through as a separate thing and just uh, put down all the words that describe you around the subject of money. Okay. And then it gets scored. 
mm-hmm. you find out what those mindsets are. And it's pretty readily available um, to, to look and see what they are if you simply want to understand a little better. So why am I, uh, why am I mostly of the uh, innocent me- mentality? Well, maybe an older woman whose husband died and he handled everything, she might have a lot of that going on. And then she can see for herself why that was, because she watched her parents behave the same way, for example. So basically, you know, anytime you work on yourself, you can, you can do a lot of these things alone. But coaching is great. And also, since you and I are in the podcast community and also Facebook community to some degree, you get a lot of support there and you can ask questions within the groups. I, I'm always happy to answer questions about what people would like to know about these things because it's, uh, it unfolds and it's complicated and detailed. But if you have the idea that you, that it's another part of your health and wellness so that just like you exercise, just like you eat better, you want to get your financial life in a better situation. And the first step is to have the mindfulness about it, to be able to say, I'm going to start thinking about this and trying to remember how things went and what that meant to me. Right. I can see that would be really important. So I get to the end of this. I've talked to you. Obviously, then I'm going to start to identify certain things that are holding me back, certain limiting beliefs, certain ideas that I'm hanging on to that make no rational sense at all. How do I change them in my own mind then? Well, there's different, I mean, there's a whole bunch, there's as many ideas of how to do it as there are people doing other kinds of work that might assist you in that process. So for example, I'm in a vitality group. I'm in, I have a meditation coach. Um, so I have people helping me with strategies that absolutely will help me when I'm in overwhelm and wanting to go shopping instead of just doing meditating, for example. So what you can do is you really can, you just... You just make sure that you are constantly building up resources around you that will support you as you unfold the journey because it's your journey and it's going to look very, very different than anybody else's. But for example, there's another, there's another thing that's done. Um, it's, there's a, a, a Hawaiian name for it. I can't remember it right now. And it's basically a forgiveness thing where you do a, a daily forgiveness of somebody who you've struggled with in your life that, that has is doing something to hold you back with your money. Um, maybe, you know, a sibling or a parent or something where you have a, a, a really deep issue and you need to forgive them and let it go. Yes, that's right. So there is this other practice uh, that you can do that's used often. It's called uh, Ho'oponopono. And I may have that slightly wrong, but it's a forgiveness and reconciliation process where you say to the person you're trying to release this situation in your own head about you say to them I love you you don't actually go to them you do it yourself I love you I'm sorry please forgive me and thank you and then you repeat it as long as you feel the need to on a daily basis or you know for as long as you want and you can do that for a lot of things and what it does is it it helps you see that you know this is not serving you to hold on to something about something that at this point, sometimes you don't even remember clearly what it was all about. Right. And we do hold on to things in a very, very irrational way sometimes. And then all of a sudden we don't even realize we're hurting ourselves. Exactly. And I think that's really a, one of the most important points. And especially in a year where we've got so much 
stuff going on in our politics and, and out there in the world and, and, and around the world is, is that our lack of forgiveness and understanding and our judging others, all it does is hold us back. It doesn't ever help. It really doesn't. No. Uh, wow. I'm glad you mentioned that whole Ho'oponopono because that's something I've heard about before and I've researched it a little bit online. And I, at first I was kind of like, well, I don't quite get this. But the more we talk, Deb, the more the light comes on. And I really understand how it's related to mindfulness, too, because mindfulness is about releasing so many of these things that we right. hold on to. Right. It really is. So to change the subject a little bit, how, sure. how do we deal with finances as a parent when it comes to our children? What's the healthiest way? Do we give them an allowance? How do we talk about money? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I before I made a decision about allowance, I think what I would do would be to have uh, some kind of regular structure where the children or your child or children are included in the family planning in general. Uh, as young as you can do that, as, as young as you can get them to sit at a table with you, you know, maybe once a week or every so often, it's something I wanted to institute in my, in my family with my children, which never was successful. So both, both parties, if it's a, if you're a couple, uh, you have to really be on the same page about this stuff because otherwise you're, that, that's the stuff your kids are going to see. And so before you even get to deciding about things about allowance, you're much smarter to go and do your own work, each of you in the couple, about what might be holding you back because you're going to be sending subtle messages to your children from the get-go. I can promise you that. Yes. And, my, I mean, I have stories relating back to when I was three, four, five years old. So it is true. And I remember the feelings even, you know, how mm -hmm. I felt at the time and, and all of that. So it's powerful stuff. So, but after you, after you sort of have that in your mind as a mindfulness practice, maybe as a family, even, um, for each of you in the couple to really, you know, get on the same page about the money part, because that is one of the main things people fight about. So it really, it, it only pays you back in dividends. And your children are, like I said, they're like little sponges, or maybe I can't remember if I did. But anyway, they're yeah, like little did. sponges. Yeah, they yeah. pick everything up. And mm. so then what I would do is when you start having family decisions about maybe vacations or choices about whether to buy that new car, you know, you can start introducing your children to it. As to the allowance part of it, I am, I'm of the opinion you should do really whatever's better for you. But what I do think you should do, no matter what you choose, assuming it's a reasonable approach and you're not, you know, beating your kids over the head about the money and, and shaming them and guilting them all the time, is what you really need to do is be consistent with whatever you do. Because I know parents who have done it both ways. And some of them, the, my approach was that uh, what you would do is you – the kids got a share of the family money, regardless of chores. And then they had chores, which were a totally separate thing. So they weren't getting compensated in any way to do work that they were required to do as part of being in our family. Right. I kept it very separate as much as I could. It was hard to do that, and it didn't always work. But that, that was what I did. The other thing I did, by the way, was I had my kids on budgets 
in certain ways. So if my daughters came and said, mom, I really want those latest and greatest jeans and they cost $120. I don't even own $120 jeans, right? Yeah. So I would say to her, look, my budget's 50. If you want to take your money and add 70 to it and buy those jeans, go for it. But $50, here you go. That's, you get to go buy a new pair of jeans. Right. That makes sense. Works really well. Yeah. That sounds like a really great idea. Yeah. So, so we just touched on the whole bullying thing earlier, but you mentioned you have a story, you know, because so often mindfulness can help reduce the effect that bullying has on people. So let's talk about your story, Deb. Well, my bullying story is more, you know, as much about a series of being bullied uh, things, which was in my own household. Mm. And it, it then continued by the person I married who, because of who I was, I was very able to fit right into that role once again of being a victim. And so the way it would play out for me, though, was I would shy away from having any input into things that were happening to me, say, at school. Mm-hmm. So the kind of way it, it, it hurt me was that I didn't stick up for myself. And so there would be a group of girls, for example, that we, uh, I remember very clearly, we went on a trip to Williamsburg. I was in the sixth grade and it was four girls to a room and um, they they shut me out of the clique, you know, mm. and that was really hard on me. And oh, I consider yeah. that an act of bullying. For sure. The way it was handled. Mm-hmm. But here's what, you know, how we can help our kids talk about that because that's a milder form of it, Right is we can say, you know what, I, I hear what's happening here. I feel sad that you're feeling sad. And I know you can be up to the challenge and you're going to meet a kid and hang out with a kid in the, that you wouldn't know otherwise. And that's what ended up happening. Mm-hmm. I spent, you know, I slept in a room with girls that were in my class that I didn't know very well. Mm-hmm. So it worked out. It's all in the, in the twisting of, of the conversation and honoring the children's response and and feelings about it and Uh, how it's affecting them that's about the worst thing we can do as parents is not to validate our children you know yeah absolutely yeah for sure debbie my next questions are part of the multi-mode round just short 30 second answers are perfect here's the first one who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice i would say uh joe samodi who is my uh, meditation coach How has mindfulness affected your emotions? Mindfulness has allowed me to stop being depressed and feeling sorry for myself and find the joy in my daily life. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Breathing is the best way for you to stop and be mindful in my book. So you are about to do something that you're going to later wish you didn't do. And when you stop and take that deep breath, it gives you a chance to collect your thoughts and be mindful of how this could play out if you don't handle it the way you should or walk away when the time is necessary. So, If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would that be? Well, since we're talking about finance, I do have a great book. Uh, there is a famous uh, author. Her name is Julia Cameron, and she is an older lady now, but she was um, – pretty well known in in her day. And she wrote a series of books, starting with something called The Artist's Way. A lot of people have used The Artist's Way. They're they're storytelling and workbooks and and, uh, all rolled into one. She has one in particular that is on the idea of abundance in your life, which is kind of what I'm getting to here with this talk about money, which is 
you will have the abundance you need, right? Mm-hmm. You will have what you need down the road. You just have to go about it in the right direction and invite that into your life. So she has a book. It's called The Prosperous Heart. And it's called, and the subtitle is Creating a Life of Enough. And it's beautifully written. And it's got so many great little stories in it and lots of ways to do the work. Great. I can't wait to read that. I think you'll love it. I think I will too. Yeah. Can you share an app which helps you be more mindful? Um, The one I've used that really applies to mindfulness is the Calm app, which is uh, another way of using another meditation thing, a tool. Mm -hmm. I don't use it all the time, but it is handy for when I'm in a hurry or I'm out of town. For sure. What advice would you give a person who is new to the idea of mindfulness and maybe they're struggling with their money issues and they want to start becoming mindful in their life? Well, uh, in the words of our fearless productivity leader, Nick Snap, shout out to Nick. Yeah. Um, I would say you have to get you have to start small. You have to start in, you know, manageable bites of everything you're going to do, because you will get things accomplished. You have to really remind yourself, be mindful of needing to have patience with yourself and be kind to yourself while you go through these things. This this is hard work, but it's really worth it work. I promise people. I've never seen anybody I've worked with when they've done some of these kinds of things with me that didn't feel better from it. So it's totally worth it. Well, you know what? You certainly have the expertise, boy. As we've been talking today, you've shared so many golden nuggets about finance and mindfulness that this is just a great episode, a great interview. So I want to thank you so much. But how can Mindful Tribe contact you, learn more about what you do? Well, the um, one way to reach me is, and you can you know, be a part of a community, is Financial Karma. That's the name of my Facebook group. And that is pretty easy to find. And then I have the pop, my new podcast of the same name, Financial Karma, which is on iTunes. And I don't think I'm on Stitcher yet, which I have to figure that one out, but hopefully soon. And then uh, the other way is to go to my website, financialkarmacoach.com. Excellent. Well, I'm sure that a lot of Mindful Tribe will be checking you out on that website. So thank you so much for a great chat, and it's been just excellent. So you have a great rest of your day, Deb. Thank you, Bruce. I really appreciate your having me on, especially to talk about something like this that is so hard for people to do. I really, I hope, I hope a lot of people get something out of it. I'm sure they will. Thanks, thank Deb. You. Yeah, bye now. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. Check our show notes for every episode at mindfulnessmode.com. On our next episode, World Frisbee Champion Aaron Watson talks about his experience with mindfulness. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.